0: Hello, and welcome to an Overthinker's Point of View, Episode 4, Background in History and Politics, as well as History of Humboldt County and the Chinese Exclusion Act. Fun Fact! Earlier today, when I was filming my episode 3 on sports, I had said I was going to do my best to do episode 4, and, you know, within the same day, um, when I could, and talk about my background in not just history, but politics. And, well, I spent an hour, about or so, filming, I would say filming still, um, recording, and... As I noticed, I was getting closer and closer to the hour mark, not even knowing that there was an hour limit. I kept talking beyond it, trying to finish my lesson at the end, and I overdid it, overtalked, as one might do as an overthinker slash teacher, sort, and historian, all in the same Um, I still might try to do a political background, but that was what made me go on multiple tangents. Although there are bits and pieces in the history lesson at the end of this episode that correlate to um, some topics I wanted to talk about in politics. Um, I believe I'm going to save politics and my background for maybe episode 5, or at least the end of this episode. Uh, rather than at the beginning. So with that, um, I will be starting with the history, Uh, the background first, and, you know, where I got to where I'm at. And like all of us, we all have to, at one point or another, decide what we want to do, what interests us, and what is something that we can see ourselves doing for a long time and stay happy. It wasn't until, you know... Uh, sophomore year tenth grade in high school, second semester, maybe the end of the first in world history, I kind of got my spark and interest, you know, growing up in my household um without getting too much detailed into it wasn't the easiest you know um wasn't a lot of ways um or Motivation to find things to fill my time and mind and keep myself occupied. Um, so I didn't get a chance to figure out what I want to do or try new hobbies until high school, and I felt kind of behind and unskilled in things. Um, sports was you know high school was about the first time I did team sports other than flag football and track in middle school and some soccer in elementary, but high school, you know, when it's recorded, I guess you could say, when I did football and volleyball, um, that was something. But obviously, to get to that, I had to get grades. And my grades weren't the best until, as the story goes and right now, with history as my motivation. uh, I had a history teacher, as most are taught, and I was taught to do the same for my students. You know, you have to learn your students' background. If they've been through some traumatic if they have any preconditions or anything that might, you know, need to be known and help you with teaching and accommodating them. You know, I guess I was one of those students that had a sticky note follow me everywhere I go with um, things I didn't even realize I had, but it was a note, you know. Um, I, again, will briefly say I grew up in a single parent household. I lost my mom when I was very young. um, And I guess there were, you know, keeping details out, some things that worried teachers and counselors throughout my elementary, middle, and high school years, maybe that they just want to keep track of that. Then again, I wasn't really aware of what was going on until I was becoming a teacher myself and learning the need for this knowledge. Um, With that being said, my history teacher in high school, uh, Freedom High Mr. Dunn, great man. Um, funny again with sports, he was a huge diehard and is and still a huge diehard Laker fan. So, you know, tongues out to you, sir. Hope you don't get it. <clears throat> but um, we were learning about the industrial revolution. I actually had read my chapter notes the night before. And we usually has little, you know, Quizzles or Quizlets or whatever we called it back then. Um, before class and I raised my hand for one of the questions you know what is a follow and for those of you out there who might not know what first thought a follow is that extra field um, farmers had that they would let replenish and like re-nutrients and you know all that um, just take a break from being farmed on while the other fields, say if it was four square one would be the follow and the other three would be used um, and his his eyes lit up. You know, I didn't really speak too much. I was too anxious. Like I wasn't the dumbest kid. None of us are really dumb. It's our confidence and anxiety that takes over in that aspect. Um, so I just finally got around to just doing it and answered. And he just made me feel good about myself. And although my skater friends at the time made a joke of it and were just like, nah man, why you gotta do that? Like why you gotta raise your hand and participate? Like and could just spark something. You know, and my father tried, I guess, in senses to get me into things he was into. Um, You know, inviting me to watch History Channel or Discovery Channel or, you know, Science Channel or anything like that. Um, Not in the most gradual way, not to where I was interested, interested, but I was learning a lot. Even though History Channel at this time was predominantly on Nazi Germany, um, I was still learning a lot and enjoying it and from you know industrial revolution on into junior year um, all the way until committed college i was just certain history teaching specifically that um, in high school where i can be more engaged with you know the school the spirit of it sports if there's sports there try to get into coaching Um, that was a big goal of mine as well while Getting into teaching was to try to become a coach and maybe even do a few periods of physical education. Because I love both the physical, you know, like just being physically active as a teacher and doing history. Like to me, that's my dream setup. And then hopefully within a decade's time or so, my master's in either education or history or both, and then just work up to being a professor which isn't too far off from where I want to be. Um, And doing things like podcasting and more experience with teaching just help with that confidence and (laughs) making sure I enunciate better. Uh, But back off this tangent, going wherever it was going, um, it was, yeah, in high school, I decided history teaching would be the way to go. It's what I knew. It's what I had confidence in, took my classes that I needed to take in community college, which for those out there who are maybe deciding, if you are going to go to college, save your money, especially during this time, and enroll at a community college before going to a four-year. Save thousands of dollars by doing that. I, it, just, you know, do that. You don't need to go to a four-year right away. I understand the feeling and wanting to rep it. I was patient for three years at my CC. Until, you know, and once I got to my college or my university, definitely, you know, you let that pride out. Um, but it's the, it's the better bet, the better road. Um, but, you know, I took my classes um, and I applied to a few different schools once it was time to transfer. And, you know, I didn't get a chance to say during my sports background or even the last one because I haven't been playing. But I am also into collegiate sports football and basketball predominantly and Michigan State Spartans are my number one for both and you know they play next week in football finally Um, but I you know enrolled not enrolled but you know I tried to I guess um, during this time I just didn't have a high enough GPA nor did they have a real you know out there history teaching secondary education type program at all so it wouldn't have worked and the out-of-state tuition would have been just insane Um, but it Always my dream school, go green, go white. I had a chance to see them play um, live in the Red Box Bowl a few years against Oregon. It's funny that I'm here now. And that was my only time ever going to Levi Stadium, the Niners Stadium. So there's a lot in that. A lot of different little things. It's funny. Um, Back on track. You know, spent my years at Humboldt State when I got there. Um, took methods, took a bunch of US courses, and you know, some European, and definitely I will love to share a lot of the things I've learned. Um, I got a chance to take modern Japanese history, which we started at the Tokugawa era and then worked all the way up to modern, and it's really interesting to kind of see the perspective of Japan leading up to. Their involvement in World War II, dating back to when Commodore Perry visited the country, all the way back in about 18, oof, about 1849 or 1850 or so, around that period. I'll have to double check. Um, but just their history is so interesting. No, definitely bring up a lesson on that, as well as you know. Theories and alternate histories of what ifs, those are always interesting to talk about and think about as well. I've done a few lessons on an alternate history, um, predominantly for those who have seen the show Man in the High Castle. Um, I made up a lesson that was definitely on what if and why and how Japan and Germany decided to unite during that period of the 30s and 20s and the such. Um, very interesting period. When you look at a different perspective other than the American perspective. <clears throat> and yes, you know, I got my bachelor's of history um, about 2017 to 18, spent more time up there just living, went to the credential program, spent time subbing, long term subbing, teaching, uh, moved down to Southern California after that, and uh, did the same for a little while. Uh, went back down a grade to 6th and 7th grade for a bit, uh, and that was fun, but not, you know, I would always prefer high school, being able to talk about more complex histories, but introductions to those, um, for them, like world and ancient is always good to like refresh your memory on because, you know, learning about the ancient world is phenomenal. I have been listening to and was motivated from a History of Rome podcast on um, Spotify, which has been around for about a decade now. But um, the way it went, you know, how detailed and precise uh, the podcaster was and just everything Roman history, it's learning and listening to someone while you're doing something else like working is great because you can just retain it and you don't have to read a book on it, even though reading is phenomenal as well. Um, that being said, as well, that's pretty much my background. I still am aiming to teach and profess and lecture, and hopefully, one day, coach with sports involved as well. Um, you know, recently moving to Oregon and and, and then just getting involved with the schools during a pandemic is, like I've said before, a real challenge. Um, mainly since I have all California credentials and obviously Oregon ones are needed, Um, but I'm getting around to that. Now last time also I kind of mentioned I was going to talk about um, a certain topic in history for my first lesson on my podcast, being about yellow journalism and biases in newspapers Um, And where those, you know, either originated from, at least in America, or, you know, examples of how it's been around for definitely over 100 to 200 years. And how relevant that is to today's world and our political system and everything. And, you know, again, I kind of want to do my lesson first. um, The first lesson, since this will predominantly be the history um, episode... And if I have time at the end, I'll do my introduction on politics, which might work out because now I know there is an hour limit and I'm about to reach the quarter mark of my time. And this lesson shouldn't take more than 20. Um, And I might go on tangents during, you know, small facts that always pop up in my head during, and I'll try not to go on for too long. And there will be relevant things to today in this lesson Although, for the majority of you out there who are listening in and have gotten this far, um, this is a history of an area not known to many of you, but it is where I went to university up in Humboldt County, up in Arcata and Eureka and Trinidad and all those small little towns within the Redwood Forest on the coastline and the beautiful, secluded place. Um, I, you know did research on local history. And for those out there too, who feel like you know everything, not know everything, but you're aware of the broad history of the country, the world, like things you've learned in school, that's great. You know, you can always do more research on those. It's out there. Um, But if you want to just keep practicing your historical, um, investigation skills and things like that, looking up local history, going to, you know, historical society, museums, and then just knowing about your area is really interesting. There are things that will relate to the broader things, the broader topics, the broader, you know, um, ideas that they can be like, oh, he was definitely a man in this time, knowing how people were at the time. <clears throat> so with that being said... This first lesson and how it correlates with today's world is again this lesson is predominantly on Humboldt County and its history, since that's where I was when I did my research on it. And I'm sharing it with you, the broader audience, wherever you're listening in from, because you know it might be interesting and you might be like, wow, that is, you know, crazy that a town and a community state and then the country might do something like this but then think more about it and what today's world and what we're doing already be like well maybe not. The topic of this lesson finally with all the anticipation I've created is on the Chinese Exclusion Act which happened in around 1880s. And this story will jump from about the 1820s up until then and its relevance to today, if you can just pause and think for a moment, why would a people be excluded? Why would there be a law on that? And although there might not be written laws today that are obvious in its writing, we as a country have excluded people time and time again examples being prior to World War II officially kicking off, but at least the uh, Kristallnacht and the destruction of Jewish properties and just surrounding them in Germany and Austria and the surrounding countries when that happened. boats of Jewish people tried to find asylum in America and they were turned away. They weren't allowed in. There was no more room. They were saying there was no more. They had to go all the way back and most of them rounded up and didn't make it up similar to more recent histories of just you know the as it's called the migrant crisis refugee crisis over in Europe and how many of those countries in the Mediterranean and southern Europe even Western are having a hard time accepting a lot or any at all of people who are fleeing from constant death and war and violence in their countries that are, if you look at the histories, long created by these Western powers. Um, And again, a little background though with my history is I predominantly focus not just on US history, but around the era of imperialism. And I view the correlation of the age of imperialism with today is strong. And out there, you just have to see the correlations and know it, and since that is my favorite era, you might find that I will bring those up, and if they sound crazy, I will bring you up the source I promise <clears throat> being said um the you know refugee crisis over there, and um I was. don't even say fortunate, but once I was over there for the time I was, I saw it firsthand and it was sad. No one would acknowledge anyone who even had children who were hungry. Luckily, although I was just an American tourist, I made sure I helped at least a few that I could with what I had. And, you know, same thing with those that are happening over here in Central and South America trying to flee the same type of violence created by the, you know, Western powers, mainly the United States on our side of the hemisphere. Um, And there is definitely on the broader history examples, you know, from the Monroe Doctrine and um, big stick diplomacy and everything like that for the reasons that we've been down there doing what we've done um, and why people want to get out. Even if many people today don't see it that way, um, you just gotta keep going back and you can find how it does correlate. Um, This history lesson is on how not just, you know, it might seem like it started there, but it gradually started, like, with many examples. Um, peoples at this period of the 19th century, so, you know, the 1800s, you know, in this country were predominantly Anglo-Americans, so uh, white Americans of the English descent, because out of all the European powers who tried to settle here, and um, to make America theirs, the English background people were the main ones who won, you know, and expanded. And so, predominantly Americans, white Americans are of Anglo-English background more than French or German or any of the others who became later newer um, immigrants rather than dominant holders of the area. Uh, but it's in the, the later, later groups who were coming in, uh, who were, you know, seen as different. <clears throat> People of power and wealth and the bosses, and at this time there were no workers' rights really. Um, you know, the bosses made sure that the blame wasn't going to be put on them, those who were making sure um, others were working, although they were getting paid less of a wage, knowing that you know, they were different. They were minorities at the time and that the white Americans wanted a full pay. It didn't matter and they wouldn't work unless they got a full pay. And they were blaming um, the minorities for taking jobs who were doing their best to provide for their families. Um, And the hardest, you know, one of the hardest centuries or eras at this time when it's supposed to be such a diverse melting pot, but so much hatred is just flowing around, you know? Um, and, you know, starting off, this will predominantly be, yes, about California, excuse me, California, um, and Humboldt, and his history. So, beginning on, you know, uh, when it comes to a diverse population, There is no other location that can better illustrate it than the state of California, okay? And when it comes to having the ability for an equal opportunity with equal chance of making it big for oneself, there is no other country that illuminates this dream like our country here, the United States. Now going back, after the end of the Mexican-American War, Americans were, you know, and prior, insisted on traveling west. To continue and complete the idea of manifest destiny by populating and controlling every little bench of land um, from the east to the west coast, connecting the oceans and creating, you know, the from sea to shining sea, quote, as it is. And this instance, you know, was definitely aided in 1848 after the Mexican American War when. around the time California and all the land was sold to America um, that the first few bits of gold were found in the Butte Mountains, I believe, Uh, and did it ignite a mass influx of not only just Americans, but foreigners from all over the world, you know, there's gold in them hills. And of course, Mexico was furious, but at this time, what could they do? with the overwhelming power of the United States above them and now they had a strong foothold there. Um, And many of the Mexican Americans who had lived there before um, became second class citizens, unfortunately, because during this period, you know, Anglo-Americans, white Americans always made sure white Americans were on top. A lot of times that's the instance today, uh, but this is just how it was back then, right? It's their land now and just how it has to go. Um but you know, not only Americans but foreigners from different countries will travel any way they could to California to try to claim some of the gold for themselves and they ended up creating a diverse melting pot or mixed salad or whatever analogy you want to use of peoples and races um in one area and this was definitely an uncomfortable feeling for the dominant Anglos. Um we see you know, with some more background history in the 1860s, if you know, and if you've seen the show Hell on Wheels, very great um, show about kind of an era, um, but not really historically accurate. Definitely drama, but great. <clears throat> um, you know, 1860s, we see the Transcontinental Railroad being built and the Pacific Union. Um, you know, the West Coast one needed more workers to complete their portion of the track. And where are you are gonna go to get a lot of building done with cheap labor being the goal, you're gonna go overseas. And um, the company went to China and they went and looked up pretty much the Chinese six company, who were a company who would sell Chinese labor. And the labor was then put on contracts and the workers would have to predominantly work off their contract. Uh, but it was this influx of these cheap laborers um, and predominantly the Chinese that made the anglos uncomfortable why um, well this is because you know they did not make they didn't make up the majority of the population or at least the foreign population that was coming in um, but due to the fact that they were the most different whether it's you know their looks because they were Asian um, their religion because they weren't Christian they weren't Catholic they weren't Um, you know anything at this time that was going to be acceptable to you know the west their language was different um they were definitely the primary targets for the general anglo population during times of economic struggle which california had dealt with multiple times up to this point Uh, multiple you know recessions and depressions um and it you know it was due to the fears of economic competition and these racist beliefs that definitely existed at this period due to the fact that the majority of uh, Californians or new Californians were coming from Southern slave states. So they carried with them their, you know, prior biases of race, inferiority, and superiority. Um, And that didn't, that didn't bode so well. And eventually, um, the population's distrust and disdain for the Chinese population grew into politics and grew into the legislation and eventually it grew into a national, apparent, a national crisis. Um, and it's from this, and even today, where people say America is, you know, the American dream, sure, for those who get lucky and work hard. but. There always been a disillusionment about this American dream of always making it here. Um, and there have been, you know, for my historians on here who know about it, who know the, the fun and the struggle of them, um, I'll try my best to provide histori- uh, historiography, historiographies too, excuse my Um, which, you know, we gotta give credit where credit's due to other historians. Um, I can always put up my lecture somehow when I start figuring out a website or wherever I'm gonna put information up for my podcast with all the citations on it, with all the historians and all the information on their research. Um, But being said, for this topic, many historians, when looking at the Chinese struggle in the late 19th century in California, focus on the attitudes Anglo-Americans had that were tied to the racist beliefs Because, again, at this period, the Chinese were considered different in almost every aspect. And these beliefs um, were a huge part of the Chinese struggle during the period of Manifest Destiny because, again, the racism was widely acceptable and just wasn't seen as inappropriate. Um, Other historians have focused on the superior-minded Anglo-Americans and how they treated the quote-unquote inferior races as people to be exploited. For more dangerous work as well as cheaper labor, which again this um, topic is about, and how that instigated tension from the working classes because it's better to divide and conquer the masses and the working classes than to have the blame fall on the owners who are the ones dictating the pay, the hours, the work, and the likes, right? Um, And some historians have also primarily focused on the the instances that the Chinese tried to fight back legally. And this helped shape them as not only just a passive people, but those who were unwilling to accept unfair treatment. Because they know they are hard workers. Okay. Hmm. But how this is gonna be different from what other historians are talking about is the fact that I'm gonna try to look at their difficult experience that Chinese people have had in the turn of the century, um, by, you know, the fact that the Chinese had no choice but to be exploited for their labor to even stay in the country to make ends meet. Um, you know, secondly they had to deal with many of the early Californians coming from the southern slave states, as they said um thus having this mentality of white supremacy already and creating unfair opportunities for minorities and lastly just looking at how the Chinese dealt with being the scapegoat during tough economic periods and they faced legislative acts that restricted their rights as much as they could be restricted until ultimately it was a national it was a national expulsion and it just destroyed the American dream and how its meaning was no more. Um, So diving in, you know, since the start of the gold rush in California and up until the completion of the transcontinental railroad in 1869, immigrants from China were finding ways to come into the country in any way that they could in order to make a claim to their own fortune um, in what was known as the land of equal opportunity in America. Um, But before anyone was able to leave China, the people had to find passage across the Pacific safely, and they needed enough money to make this trip. The Chinese six companies, as I've said before, they were a coalition of districts within the Kwantung province, and they helped establish the influx of cheap Chinese labor into the United States by providing the laborers with both passage and work, but at the cost of the majority of their money earned which created a contract labor system that established their legitimacy to be in the country. And early newspaper articles in California started to warn and inform the people of this continuous influx Um, in as early as 1854. You know, with gold being found in 1848, so this is about six years later, Um, Californians, at least the Anglos, in the newspapers are being warned of this Chinese influx of people, Um, stating how, quote, the Chinese were heading to the locations like the Klamath Mountains, which were about an hour or so northeast of Humboldt, um, and they offered uniform wages and deep diggings that paid handsomely and that it was insisted that more white miners hurried to make their claims before the Chinese or any other minorities could. And, like I said before, California and most of the country had dealt with numerous recessions and depressions during this period prior because just the banking system and everything was not um, organized up until FDR's time, honestly. And Again, at this period, you know, late 1860s, you know, California's economy fell again uh, around the completion of the railroad, and many of the Chinese workers who were there to work on it, had been paid to work on it and had to pay the company to be there to work on it, realized they no longer had a set job and they had to fight for work in order to remain in this country. And this was often unknown to the unsettled, you know, Anglo Californians who were not only fatigued themselves and demand of better work days, but thought that the Chinese were there like sent on purpose to send their earnings home to China, taking money out of the American economy and into their foreign systems, which to most Americans kept the United States from achieving economic prosperity and helped surface the early tensions of racism towards the Chinese. And by the 1880s, during the state depression and um, you know corporate takeover, there were thousands of jobless men, white and Chinese and other minorities, identically, who were suffering and jobless, and they needed a reason why. And you know, to the years, to those who are you know history oriented or are learning about it, maybe in school, because unfortunately it is a period that gets skipped over, but not a lot of time in a year to teach. Um, the 1880s was around the start of the Gilded Age in America. Um, I might do more podcasts on that era. I took a class on that era. it's a great era, um, a very important era. About 1870s to the 1930s, started the Great Depression about. And it is a time of the barons. If you remember the robber barons, right? Of the steel industry, the oil industry, the banking industry, all the top dogs who made all the money, like Carnegie. Rockefeller. Up in the Pacific Northwest, there was the Lumber Barons. And they wanted to thwart the workers' demands for better work days. At this time, unions were trying to form, although they were always getting squashed, and they were trying to fight for eight hour days and weekends and such, but it took a while. Um, the Robber Barons gave the white workers a reason to be upset and a person, people to blame and they shifted the attention and blame on the Chinese as a cause for the fragile white economy, the poverty and the frustrated dreams that were being felt by many. The Chinese were, however, good with their money. As a popular figure in Eureka during the 1880s, a Mr. Reverend C.A. Huntington took notice of this and um, wrote an autobiography, and I quote, they would manage living situations based on income and send money back home to their families. The saloons hated them because they wouldn't spend there they would only buy from other chinese so the u.s merchants hated them the laboring class that wouldn't work unless given full price hated them and whoever employed them so essentially with that first hand primary source uh, we can at least get the sense uh from the reverend that the chinese were honest workers and um, they liked to be around what was familiar to them. Um, and because of this fear that they kept to themselves, um, fear and blame ensued on the Anglo's part that they were just trying to only take the economy and what they earned back to China. And that's this period. And California was a swing state and the elections often. You know, it wasn't just set as a blue state or red or whichever one is considered democratic, um, but they were a swing state, and they've been that way since the late 1800s, and at this time, Congress, and this may correlate to today, you tell me, um, that's why I wanted to bring up the political background in this episode, but my last attempt went over an hour, I'm not trying to go that far, so I might bring it up in the next episode, um, the Congress took advantage of the fears that the majority of the people were feeling, and helped shift the thoughts on the bad econ- economy to dealing with the Chinese in the United States as a national problem. So shifting the fears onto something else. Hmm. Um, however, during the Depression and at this time, the Chinese people were a source of important tax money that helped pay taxes in mining districts that would be bankrupt without them. So it wasn't until after the economy improved that the push for their exclusion would actually happen so use them for what they were helping us with the economy and when the economy seems to get a little bit better then we can start pushing them out so with the racial tensions now rising open acts of vulgarity increased as well an instance involving two chinamen both who were working in the woods Picking berries and earning a wage doing so. um, They were just working and began to be harassed by some white boys. And the article of this newspaper, which dates back to the 23rd of June, 1877, of the Humboldt Times, um, talks about how uh, the article details a scene that excuse is always found by the white men to bother the Chinamen. Always. Either because the Chinamen were being saucy, or a gun went off accidentally, or they were working somewhere without a citation or a permit to do so, um, or you know, if the Chinaman just decided to stand up to himself for being harassed, he would end up in jail article although that was kind of some mumble jumble and I apologize um again this pretty much talked about how it was often easy for Chinamen to be harassed um the second article which is also from the Humboldt Times dated at 14 March 1868 kind of more talks about and shows just the disdain of um how they felt with the Chinese and their language skills um and just how different they felt they were. Uh, At this time, a derogatory term for the Chinese was, you know, to be called a John. And this article calls them an intelligent John and questions them and blames them for a bank robbery that happened recently. And when being quoted, um, the Chinese, the way they were quoted, it was written as if, you know, listening to the broken English. And it's... It was definitely an interesting thing to see on paper. If you ever get a chance to, uh, I don't know if it's online, but I had to find it on microfilm within the Humboldt State Archives, so I doubt it. Um, just to see them write it as if someone mocking, you know, someone from China trying to speak English. It was it was tough, but at the time that was seen as okay. Uh, but again, you know, it was just being more open and more acceptable, and there were rumors that started to float around about why the Chinese were even in the United States to begin with. Um, And one that started growing steam was that the Chinese remained loyal to their emperor and that just their presence in California was, quote, the advancing guard of numberless legions that will one day overthrow the Republic of the United States, which coined the phrase the yellow peril and that can be found in the book Driven Out by Faisler. cannot pronounce, but spelled P-Z-A-E-L-Z-E-R on page 157 for those um, who might have heard of the term yellow apparel. And another rumor circulated around the Chinese that involved their health and how diseased they were as a people. In 1882, and this can be found online if you dig deep enough, During a House debate, I believe, House debate, no, if you actually look up Martin B. Gold's Forbidden Citizens, Chinese Exclusion in U.S. Congress, uh, on page 139, that one discusses this quote, Uh, but in 1882, during the House debate, or a House debate, Representative William H. Culkins gave his opinion on how the Chinese already in America had left little legacy behind other than infectious disease. Quoted, wherever they go, rot and mildew spread throughout the entire community. In San Francisco in 1862, we start seeing anti-coolie clubs, um, which had a purpose to promote anti-Chinese feelings and encourage discriminatory legislature that soon became the national sentiment toward the Chinese. At one time, the laboring class and separate ethnic groups were one and the same until the universalized distaste for the Chinese arose and it became hard for other Californians to speak out on their behalf without receiving their own due in harassment. And one such man who was once an advocate to the Chinese in San Francisco predominantly uh, proudly naturalized Irish-American, Dennis Kearney. And that name might sound familiar if you've ever driven on Kearney Street in San Fran or Eureka, if you've been up there, or anywhere else, maybe in California, named after Dennis Kearney. Uh, and again, as I said, he was once an advocate to the Chinese for being different. And if you caught newly and proudly naturalized Irish-American, the Irish were not always seen as white, nor seen as equal to everyone else. They were treated just as bad, if not worse, to the minorities by the Anglos. And once they were finally accepted as being white, boy, did they jump in and enjoy it and make sure that they fit, that they fit in. Kearney was an example of this, and he turned his back on the troubled Chinese and joined the Working Man's Party, whose slogan at the time was, the Chinese must go as he learned it was the popular opinion of the people to target the Chinese. Kearney, who was known not to hide his opinion, then often called for ethnic cleansing and the belief that to an American, death is equivalent to life on par with the China- Chinaman. And this was an idea he didn't let go until his death. Blinded by racism and xenophobia, Californians had lost interest with the Chinese and the legislation started to find ways to rid the state of this considered menace. Before the statehood of California, miners were the first to create laws that opposed the Chinese presence. In 1849, the Miner's Law deprived the Chinese of mining claim privileges and from living within their established towns and camps. The same year, the first California Constitutional Convention was underway with the state's first 48 delegates coming from different ways of life, but as said before, the majority being from the slavery approved South. To every one of these delegates, the term white was important in understanding the created constitutional rights, in that minorities of color were different and unequal of these rights. At first, The Californians started to deal with the Chinese on a non-discriminatory basis, but once they realized that policy conflicted against their views on the African and Native Americans at the time, they unanimously created anti-Chinese measures as to not cause unrest in a state like Alabama. So why would it be fair to treat the Chinese any better and let the Native Americans and African Americans see that and get upset? and start a riot. No, we must treat them all terrible. Keep them all down. That was the goal. And so over the next few decades, many Chinese oriented laws were made at the request of the unsettled Californians. In 1862, one such law was created with the Chinese police tax that taxed those who were engaged in non-agricultural occupations or weren't already paying the miners tax. And if the tax wasn't paid the tax collectors had the right to take the Chinese personal belongings as compensation. San Francisco uh, itself created multiple ordinances specifically targeted at the Chinese in order to make their lives unbearable in order to drive them out of the city and they wrote these ordinances without a mention of the term Chinese so in a way to make it seem as if they were not targeting them at all but only targeting what the Chinese were predominantly doing. A way to be obvious, but when called out on it, can easily throw that and technically not be wrong. Something we see today as well, I will say. Uh, But again, none of them mentioned the term Chinese, Uh, but there is one such ordinance Um, In 1870, that was called the cubic feet ordinance that charged a fee for the amount of space that the Chinese were occupying. And this was usually cramped and many of the Chinese could not pay these fines. And many of them were then arrested, which resulted in overcrowding of the jails and something that lawmakers ended up not wanting. So to cancel out the fine, they began to do an unimaginable crime considered to the Chinese culture. They began to cut off the cubes which is their long braided hair considered sacred in their culture. When San Francisco created the laundry ordinance in 1884 many of the Chinese who were issued this uh, brought it to court no more than two hours after the ordinance was created because after it was created the fines and the accusations started coming out before there was even an announcement. So for two hours, that it was an unjust time to convict the accused without even acknowledging that they knew it was being made. Um, Others who did get charged, like some Frenchmen, um, they only had to pay a fine uh, before being released uh, but for the Chinese, they were detained and they were held for much longer periods of time. Another ordinance in the city that had to do with property value, as many property owners would sue those renting out buildings to the Chinese, um, They often, often because they felt the Chinese presence hurt their business and wanted them gone. Again, something we've seen today with what is known as redlining and gentrification and trying to drive out a certain type of people, Um, and it's often blamed or put on their way of life or their actions more than the predominant elephant in a room of the real reason why, um, you know, again, we see examples back during this period as well. Um, business owners felt that Chinese people in their area hurt the value of the property. Um, and just constantly arresting and holding the Chinese for long periods of time, just Created this growing riddance of wanting to get rid of them from the city. Uh, to, and to most, attorneys Chinese were just temporary visitors that were depressed, or that depressed the standard of the labor. And they retained allegiance to their own country and would overwhelm the white community if they would not be kicked out soon. Um, this feeling was felt throughout the you know country and predominantly the Pacific Coast and in the city of Eureka, and. It is in this North Coast town we find a Chinatown. Um, and it's similar to other areas uh, the Chinese predominantly keep to themselves. The Chinese were very important to the community. They built some of the first roads in Humboldt. Um, but, like everywhere else, you know, with the economic and racial fears that many of the whites had against the hardworking Chinese, um, they were just a spark away from finally getting rid of them. And unfortunately, as triads were a thing, um, but as these were called Tong gangs, um, they've wound up coming to this Chinatown and were trying to cause some trouble. And unfortunately, a white city councilman was in the area and caught a stray bullet from one of the Chinaman gang members' gun. And this happened in about February of 1885. And it finally, that councilman being shot and killed was the spark. Um, and at first the city went into a rampage and they wanted to murder and get rid of the Chinese in that sense, but finally met up and came to a peaceful agreement to just kick them out of the city. So in the middle of the day, the next, you know, day, the next morning, once he notices was said that all Chinamen must leave or people of China must leave the county by, um, you know, five in the afternoon or so. Otherwise, they would be hung. And this was shown by a gallows being built in the center of town with the noose ready to go for anyone who was caught straggling. And there were a few instances with either the Reverend Huntington or a few landowners who became close friends with their workers, um, tried to save them, tried to fight off the others from taking them out. I believe a few were able to stay under their protection. Um, but everyone else, uh, the Chinese, uh, were put on two small vessels one, the Humboldt, and the second, the Chester. And they were just sent down the coast. Um, from this purge, leaving pretty much everything behind, everything being uh, taken by the Anglos or destroyed, you know, has it has happened even later on when the Japanese were interned and their businesses were ransacked, you know, everything that the Chinese left behind just was never recovered and taken. Um, and the ships without notice or even mentioning to anyone like San Fran just dumped them off and left. And um, for many, many, many years, decades, and on and on up until nineteen eighties, the China men or I apologize for saying that, uh, people from China or of the background, um, they refused to even go to the Pacific Northwest or Eureka due to that history that is not known. Um, and you know, this this method when they were excluded from the area, it became known as the Eureka method, the peaceful way to rid the Chinese out of any area. And once the Chinese arrived in San Francisco, again, you know, they dispersed and disappeared into the city, and it was, you know, noticed and felt a big influx of Chinese. And after time, you know, they did a census and noticed it there was a huge gain. And um we see In 1882, the national government finally getting around to feeling these sentiments from the West Coast and the national government created the Chinese Exclusion Act that officially barred all Chinese immigration into the United States and 10 years later, the act was aided by the 1892 Geary Act which then excluded Chinese laborers from entering period because prior laborers were allowed to come in, you know, on worker visas. But 10 years later, they decided no Chinese allowed at all. And this was the first time in the nation's history that Congress was making prohibitions on naturalizations of citizens, of people trying to become Americans. And again, it wasn't until the late 20th century that the Chinese felt comfortable returning to the Pacific Northwest because of the dark history of the story I was able to share with you today. Um, and you know, in San Francisco, one of the more historical Chinese location ordinances were created to bar the Chinese civil rights in any way they could because they, you know, like we're different. While in Eureka, the differences plus the economic hardships aided the targeting in this group. Um, you know, although many racial minorities did face similar treatment during this, uh, during this period and throughout the history of this country, the Chinese had laws that kept them from traveling to the land of America, you know, equal opportunity, and, um, and again, to how relevant that is to today, just with the Chinese Exclusion Act itself and the history of its relevance to how Humboldt County literally kicked out its population and dumped them off in San Fran, um, and how today we see that similar to not allowing those refugees or just people in. I find it similar because, you know, people from China were trying to escape from hardships themselves for a better life. That is what America has always been about. Um, and it's not for just one group to do so. Um, I know many will find a different um, But just from the history aspect of it and just seeing how many people have hardships um, of different kinds, you know, you just know the American story of it um, and like here groups coming in, but you need to kind of look at, okay, well, what's happening in their countries that's making large amounts of them come to our country for help or to get away or start anew. And I'm sure maybe some of you have gotten a political feeling of my leanings, and that's okay. Um, I see noticed I am about to be at the hour mark with just three minutes to spare, which is perfect, which I can end my episode here and tell you that the next episode will be on my political background. It'll be shorter. It will definitely have coalitions with um, today's lesson slash my little topic. And... Um, I just hope that you guys kind of understand why I think the way I do politically um, and how I don't like putting things in just two categories. I feel things are more complex than just a left and a right as we are dealing with and are forced to deal with in our country. With that, thank you for listening to an Overthinker Overthink for an over an hour. This is my point of view on how history is always relevant. today, in the past, and tomorrow. Dive in to the next episode. I appreciate you, and again, this is an overthinker's point of view. Thank you.